welcome. I'm Alexia Hudson Ward, the Editor-in-Chief of Toward Inclusive Excellence, or TIE for short, a multimedia blog hosted by Choice, a publishing unit of the Association of College and Research Libraries, a division of the American Library Association. Among the goals of this channel is developing a corpus of resources for information professionals, undergraduates, faculty of all disciplines, campus staff, and administrators at every level, seeking to advance and promote research-centered diversity, equity, and inclusion insights on their campuses and within their communities. We are excited to welcome you to this season's podcast series that borrows its name from the Higher Education Academic Calendar. Therefore, you're listening to Ty's Fall Semester Podcast. This in-dialogue discussion is centered upon a recent Supreme Court ruling in the Andy Warhol Foundation for Visual Arts versus Lynn Goldsmith case. At the heart of this 7-2 ruling in favor of Goldsmith, the Supreme Court agreed with Goldsmith, a celebrated music photographer, that Andy Warhol and the Warhol Foundation violated copyright continuously by displaying Warhol's reinterpreted artwork based on her copyrighted photograph of music artist Prince. The Supreme Court was clear in its majority opinion that the fair use argument from the Warhol Foundation is not applicable. Understandably so, this ruling raised a lot of concerns within the glam sector. Glam is galleries, libraries, archives, and museums, as reinterpreted imagery and artwork from copyrighted images are within many of our collections. So what's next for us and our collections and AI-generated interpretive art that is taking off like a rocket? To help us unpack the complexities of this case, we have two legal experts in this discussion. Katie Zimmerman, the MIT Library's Director of Copyright Strategy, and Jonathan Ban of Policy Bandwidth, who was also the 2017 American Library Association L. Ray Patterson Copyright Award winner. Katie earned a BA in Psychology from Rice University, an MLS degree from the University of Pittsburgh, and a JD degree from Harvard University. Jonathan received a BA, magna cum laude, and Phi Beta Kappa from Harvard College, and a JD from Yale Law School. I believe you'll enjoy this compelling discussion about a remarkable case. Now on to our conversation with Katie Zimmerman and Jonathan Bann. Katie and Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you. And I know this is going to be a really great conversation about quite the compelling and interesting case. Thank you. Happy to be here. Me too. Thank you. So I want to start with um, understanding a little better and also helping our listeners understand a little better. What are some of the major implications of this ruling? And Katie, if you'd like to start, please go right ahead. Sure. Um, 
So I'll start by saying I, I hope the implications are kind of overstated. Like I, I this this fact this case is very specific to its facts, and I'm hoping that it will be interpreted in that way and and won't have huge impacts because I don't like the way it came out. But uh, so so that is that is one thing that I'd say about it. One area that um, I think is interesting to talk about with it is um, potentially the implications for discussions around AI and copyright that have been coming up recently. Yes. Um, so when, you, when you're training a large language model, you ingest a lot of copyrightable works. Before this case came out, I would have said that this was clearly covered under prior case law. This is the Google Books and HathiTrust cases. And you know, you've, once, you've, once you've done your fair use analysis for the ingest, then you have your thing and you're done and you kind of don't need to reevaluate every single time. Um, but one of these, th- one of the things that this case might suggest is that you do have to do redo the fair use analysis for those downstream uses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you were saying that you don't like the case and I appreciate that candor. I'd like to hear a little more around what is it that really troubles you about the Supreme Court's decision? I wouldn't say I wouldn't say I'm you know extremely troubled. I think it's uh, I think it's a it's a very specific sort of case mm-hmm. that um, you know I I disagree with the outcome. I tend to agree with the dissent's reasoning, um, and I think it's you know it's going to have some impact on how we do fair use analyses for things that are quite different from this rather specific situation that this case came out of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. Jonathan, um, would you share your thoughts around the major implications of this ruling? Well, <clears throat> I, I tend to agree with Katie. Um, I think that uh, uh, you know, the, the, the facts here are very, very specific. And I mean, to some extent, they're always that way in fair use cases, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's supposed to be a, a case-by-case analysis, and you're looking at the four factors and you know, you you know, here in this case, you're mainly focusing on the first factor, but because it's supposed to be a fact-intensive inquiry, it it does have you know the, the court really focused on all the peculiarities. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's always you know stray comments, uh, what we call dicta, that uh, uh, you know conceivably can take on a life uh, of its own. And, and there's, you know, arguably some of that here. And then I know we'll talk later on about the dissent. Uh, yes. I, I think that also poses its own set of uh, issues. Um, but but I think generally I, I, I agree with 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 Katie. Uh, you know, the, the court really zeroed in on a couple of very specific facts in this case, which really distinguish it. From almost any other situation, um, and and I I would say even the artificial intelligence situation that that Katie was alluding to, but but having said that, you know again, you know creative lawyers uh, take decisions and stretch them <laughs> out of out of proportion and and contort them, and so certainly uh, the, this decision uh, could be uh, contorted. Uh, to have uh, negative implications. 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and Jonathan, since you raised the dissent, I would like for us to pivot um, into that. Katie had also mentioned it as well. I found the partners on the dissent to be compelling, interesting, and especially around their belief that the ruling will stifle creativity. And so what are your thoughts about the dissenting opinion and what appears to be an assertion to really protect creative works? from those two justices. Uh, yeah, so uh, if you, if you, you the, the dissent and the majority opinion do not match up at all, meaning if you just read no. the dissent, you would right. think, oh my God, you know, this is the end of appropriation art. This is the end of all 20th century art. You know, every, you know, museum and library, needs to disgorge their collections of not just Andy Warhol, but every art 20th century, or frankly, any artist that's under, you know, that, 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 uh, that, that, that used works that were in copyright, right? Because yes, the yes. way the, you know, the, uh, but, 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 but I don't think, I think the, I think the dissent uh, either uh, intentionally misread the majority opinion uh, or was trying to overstate the negative implications of the majority opinion, or it could very well be, you know, the way these these uh, decisions are written, you know, you have a draft of the majority opinion, you know, circulated among the justices and then you know the the dissent a draft dissent is circulated among the justices and then they keep on kind of you know tinkering with it and responding to each other but it could very well be that the the majority opinion maybe really uh, uh, evolved significantly in response to the minority you know in response to the dissent and it could be mm-hmm. that the majority opinion when it first came out really you know was sort of horrible in the end of 20th century art um, and then in response to the dissent, it kind of really narrowed. And, and so mm, and just okay. to, to, make, to make that clear, the majority opinion, you know, the, the facts that Katie and I were alluding to, the majority opinion really focuses and says, look, what, what is the use that we're talking about here? And it says mm-hmm. the use that we're talking about here is not Andy Warhol's creation of these additional uh, silkscreens of of Prince, the rest of the Prince series. That's not, you know, the court said, that's not what's at issue here. The issue here is the licensing of those images, and particularly one of those images, for use as a magazine cover, right? And so, which is this highly Mm -hmm. commercial use, right? You know, a, a magazine cover, the cover of a magazine basically is intended to sell the magazine. That's its purpose. And and it was sort of the, the use of this silkscreen and the licensing of it for that purpose, that was not a fair use. And in particular because, you know, the the, the artist, the, the, the photographer sort of sold into that identical market. I mean, she sold mm, images mm-hmm. for magazine covers and for use in magazines, you know, which is totally different from the art market. And uh, right. uh, so, yeah. uh, so the, the court was really focused on that about, you know, the, it was about licensing the this 
Andy Warhol image um, for the very specific purpose of, you know, this highly commercial purpose of a magazine cover. And that is, again, totally different from from what libraries and museums and collectors, I mean, mm -hmm. they don't do that. I mean, that's that's totally different. And uh, but that's the kind of use that the dissent was talking about. And so Got it. that's why mm -hmm. there's this complete mismatch. Uh, so certainly, you know, uh, and ultimately, you know, what matters is not what the dissent says. What matters is what the, you know, majority opinion says. Um, but certainly you can imagine people will talk about, you know, point to the dissent and say, well, this is what the decision means and 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 run with it. And so that's where it could have uh, uh, possible negative uh, implications. Got it. And Katie, you had alluded to um, siding more with the dissent opinion earlier on. So can you give your perspectives on this as well? Yeah, sure. So um, so I, I agree with John. I, I, I hope that the, that the dissent is overstating the, uh, the, the impact of this decision. I agree with the dissent um, that... There's something there's something odd going on here with the fair use factors. So the, another way that this case is very specific is that the court isn't considering the whole analysis. The court is only being asked to weigh in on the first fair use factor, mm -hmm. and and that is it. Um, and I, I think that's having a weird effect here because they are they are bringing in there is commerciality is part of the first factor, but it's also part of the fourth factor. And the dissent talks talks about. We're we're asking the first factor to do fourth factor work here, and that's that's I, I think that is having an effect, and I think that's problematic. I'd be interested in uh, your your opinion, Jonathan, on how that how we ended up with this specific question. I don't I don't know the answer to that. Well, I I, I, I think there's even a more a, a bigger weirdness, <laughs> if that's a phrase. Um, uh, about <laughs> I like this, it. This decision so. Usually when you do a copyright analysis, any kind of copyright case, I mean, the first thing that the, the uh, plaintiff, the, 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 the rights holder has to prove is that there was the copying of protected expression, right? Copyright doesn't prevent all copying. It just prevents copying of protected expression. And uh, and so here, you know, you know, the argument would be that the the Warhol silkscreen copied aspects of the photograph of the Goldsmith photograph of Prince, but um, the, the 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 district court and I forget, I think both I forget over the district court, but certainly the court of appeals never looked at whether there was a taking of protected expression, it sort of just assumed that and went right to fair use. And I think mm. actually the district court did as well, but I think the district court assumed that there was a taking of protected expression, but said, but no problem, it's a fair use. And then it went up on appeal and the, 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 the appellate court, the second circuit said, no, no, not a fair use, uh, looking at all factors. And then when it went up to the Supreme Court, they only looked at the first factor, which was sort of decisive in the second circuit's analysis, but, but as Katie alluded, I mean, you, you need to look at all factors. But the fact that there was never a holding 
on whether there actually was a protected uh, taking of protected expression. I mean, that the case has to be remanded to the district court. Right. It's going back to the district court to determine whether there was a taking of protected expression. And I think in this case, there's a really good argument that there wasn't because Prince's face is Prince's face. That belongs to him. And a photograph, right. a head-on photograph of Prince, you know, you could have a hundred photo photographers and they do a head-on photograph of Prince. It, it's going to look like Prince. And then if you do a silk screen based on it, you know, the, the, the beard, the mustache, the hair. I mean, all that's Prince. That's not Goldsmith. Um, and, and then so if you do the abstraction, you know, kind of a Warhol treatment of it, it's going to be, they're all going to look the same. It doesn't matter who Warhol, would, what reference work he used, any head-on photograph would look pretty much the same. And so much of the you know, the, 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 the copyright in a photograph is thin, is, is the way it's described. Uh, and that means that, you know, because the photographer, you know, to the extent he's, he or she is trying to capture reality, I mean, the reality is the reality. So then it's whatever the photographer brings to it. So it's a lot of it has to do with the overall composition. But here, mm-hmm. Warhol didn't take the overall composition. All the stuff in the background and the cropping and the, you know, all that's gone. All that Warhol took is Prince's face. And so there's really a good argument here that there was no copying of protected expression whatsoever, in which case it's like the rest of it is, I mean, you know, the, the holding is the holding. But I, I have a, I, you know, I think that there's a good chance that the, the district court is going <laughs> to ultimately find that there was no taking of protected expression, which you know, sort of suggests that none of, none of this really should have, you know, it shouldn't have, it, they shouldn't have gone, you know, they went down that road because of his sort of mistake in not mm-hmm. doing that first. And to some extent, you know, the, the Supreme Court probably should never have heard this case. They should have said, no, we're not going to look at right. fair use until you dis- until there's a finding of a taking of protected expression. But, you know, they didn't. Yeah, that's the thing that's so surprising to me, Jonathan and Katie, is that this went to the Supreme Court and that they actually ruled on it. And it's equally surprising to me, the vote, it was seven to two. So it wasn't like, you know, it, it, it doesn't give the impression to the layperson with little to no legal experience, you know, any idea that this was not a united decision of the majority of the court. And it's just, it's, it's puzzling, you know, it's puzzling to me. Um, I know it's puzzling to many others. And when this ruling came out, you know, it sent chills through what we refer to as the glam sector, you know, the galleries, libraries, archives, and museums, because so many of these entities manage and acquire original art and high quality reproductions, some of which land in those organizations, marketing and promotional materials. And so what advice would you have for libraries and archives and museums to make sure that they're not violating copyright laws, given this new iteration from the Supreme Court? Uh, Yeah, I think that's a a very interesting aspect of this ruling and an interesting interesting problem that comes out of it. It's not a It's not a space that I'm incredibly familiar with. I haven't worked with museums and licensing in that way. 
Um, but I heard a, um, I heard someone speak about it a few weeks ago. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to apologize for probably mispronouncing her name, but, uh, Sriba, uh, Quadjovi Quintana, um, at, uh, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art spoke, spoke a few weeks ago. And it is, mm. it is affecting how museums are handling this, um, which I think is an unfortunate outcome, probably. Um, I'm not sure what to do about it. I think like if there's a solution to it, it's caution and perhaps contractual um, protections that you can put in place, making sure you're really clear when you acquire art, are there third party materials in it and who's responsible for having sorted that out? Yeah. Yeah. Jonathan, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I I, I, I agree that, you know, people are going to have to be more careful, but I, I think they shouldn't be too much more careful, right? I think, I think they should sort of, you know, you know, look at are they, you know, it, it really is all about the licensing. So if a museum uh, has a, a Warhol in its collection, which is, you know, based on something else, it shouldn't have any problems about hanging it. It shouldn't have any problems about, you know, including it in a catalog about you know like a, a in an ex in a catalog about an exhibit that's sort of analyzing the photograph but they need to be careful about licensing it for other uses you know for the towels mm-hmm. and the coffee mugs now the truth is they should always have been careful about that but, sure. but I think they'll be more careful it could be that they sort of assumed well you know, because it's a Warhol, right? It's a, it, you know, that that there isn't much of the underlying, you know, you know anything that Warhol took was a fair use, uh, assuming that there was a protected expression taken, but it was a fair use. And so therefore, sort of these downstream uses were automatically fair. Um, again, I'm not sure why they would assume that. Uh, and also in any event, the museum doesn't own the copyright to the Warhol, right? The Warhol Foundation owns the copyright. Right. You know, I think they just need to think about it more carefully and just, you know, or to the extent that there is a, you know, an an artist has, you know, know, a gallery, an art gallery is dealing directly with the artist, uh, you know, the the Warhol Jr. Jr. or whatever, um, Mm-hmm. Again, that they would need to say, okay, well, if we're going to make these other reproductions or you know license it for some other use, we need to be more careful, do our due diligence to you know say, well, or even if we think it's okay, maybe it's you know yeah, why not why not go back to the original photographer and you know pay pay them another couple hundred bucks or something, right? I mean that that's going to be a lot simpler. But I, I don't know why they wouldn't have been doing that all along. Um, and and to some extent, you know, there was, you know, one could say there was kind of a bit of sloppiness here, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, given that the, the, and I think that that's also sort of an undercurrent in the kind of unique facts that the first, the first print, uh, the silkscreen that Warhol made based on the Goldsmith photograph was licensed, right? I mean, he, you know, Vanity Fair, Got a license, paid Goldsmith to make one right. photograph, I mean, one silkscreen, and then Warhol went ahead and made 
multiple silk screens, but again, they they paid for the right to sort of use it as a reference for one work. And then they, you know, and, and so that's why it just, it, it, I think once you, once someone knows all the facts, you could sort of say that the, the court, it's not surprising the court you were talking about before about seven to two. It's like, it's not surprising that seven justices thought, you know, she does deserve the photographer, Goldsmith, does deserve some extra money. I mean, she was paid the first time. So on yeah. what basis do you say she doesn't get paid for the other times, right? And that just doesn't, it just sort of says, well, that that doesn't sound fair. And fair use is about fairness. She, right. if, if Vanity Fair paid the first time, then Vanity Fair or Warhol should have paid the second time. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that, that jumps out at me in this opinion is there is that initial like artist's reference. And there was a contract. Like There was a contract that said, we're going to pay you a certain amount of money and this image is going to be used as an artist reference to create an illustration. And I feel like the way this should have gone is, you know, that's a transaction, that's a whole transaction, it's paid for, and then it shouldn't have followed on into this ongoing IP relationship. But the um, but it it didn't, and the art and I think that's because the artist reference contract included the licensing of the subsequent illustration. Like it kind of mm-hmm. the contract kind of assumes that this is more of a derivative work situation than a fair use situation. Um, so that, I mean, that suggests maybe that better contracting could help with this in the future. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you both for those really important points. And I think about something that you two were alluding to earlier in our conversation around fair use and artificial intelligence. Um, as we are starting already to see some real battles emerging between AI artists, fair use, derivative use, et cetera. How do you see this particular case informing the future of other types of creative works that could be generated in college campuses? You know, like I, I hearken back to some of the early days of hip hop music and had the Supreme Court noodled in that, we wouldn't have some of the classics that we have now because of the issues around remixing and sampling. And, and that's just one idea that I'm thinking about is, as we know, many students and artists and faculty and researchers are now starting to leverage AI in different ways and, and create new types of pieces that are sometimes informed by existing works. How do you see, if any, potential impact um, with this ruling on that aspect of creative development? Well, AI is a very complicated issue. Uh, the, 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 the copyright issues relating to it are complex and uh, we're still very early days. Um, I, I, I would say that on the, uh, on the, with respect to the ingestion of content, I don't really think that the Warhol decision has any, tells us anything about it. It's just so different. Mm-hmm. Right, sort of, like mm-hmm. the, the, sort of the ingestion of content for training purposes, just it's so far away. And now on the output side, I mean, it, it could be interesting implications. Um, uh, so let's say the AI generates an image which might be substantially similar to an original image, and then it's going to be, you know, use this 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 derivative is used in some way and then the then 
you know, conceivably the the person uh, who was entered all the prompts, the user who was entering all the prompts into the AI to generate that output would then have to come up with some fair use defense. And so in that case, it could it, it could be relevant, um, you know, especially if, uh, again, they were um, use the image and then put it on a T-shirt, right? I mean, so you can uh, you can right. sort of right. imagine that, you know, it's like, okay, do give me, you know, a war, something in the style of so-and-so. And then again, there's a whole question about whether that should be considered infringing, but to the extent it's like a very specific, you know, it does cross that threshold into so that the, the output is substantially similar to the, some input and then, you know, but again, it would have to be in the fair use argument. You, you, you would, it would really have to be. You know, is it, is it, uh, is there some kind of highly commercial use uh, that that's different from the original? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I agree with that, and I think the I think the most significant part of that is it still has to be substantially similar. Like I think uh, I think it would. I don't think this case. I I think I agree with you. I think this case doesn't change too much because you still have to, the, the output still has to be um, in potentially infringing. Um, mm-hmm. It would be, I think it would be problematic if that weren't the case. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, because I, I just happenstantially stumbled apro- across an argument on Instagram between the photographer and an artist who I believe regenerated an image from the from her photograph and created a new piece of artwork. And you know, she was she literally says to the person, I just want a Supreme Court ruling on this topic. You need to take this down. And the person said, I'm not obligated to take it down because it's my art. You know, like it's informed by an image that, you know, yes, you may have made several years ago, but I you know, did other elements to it, which then allows me to have imprints. And it was just fascinating to watch that. I was like, wow, wow, wow. Yeah, what no. is that going to mean? Yeah, no, go ahead, John. Yeah, yeah no, 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 like, I, yeah. I agree. I mean, you, you're certainly going to see all, you're going to see uh, uh, the, 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 there is, there's, there's no question that there's going to be all kinds of cases that are going to be coming out with all sorts of different fact patterns. Yes. And, and it's going to be really important to separate these different fact patterns. And certainly if, you know, if I um, uh, take uh, someone's photograph, so let's say I take a photograph of another celebrity, let's say Travis Kelsey um, or Taylor Swift, or I, I take, <laughs> I, I take, I take, you know, we had to work that into this conversation, right? Oh, totally. No, thank you for that. You know, so let's say I take, uh, I take an existing photograph of Travis Kelsey and an existing photograph of Taylor Swift, and then I put them into um, uh, uh, into Dolly or one of these other uh, AI uh, systems, and then I do lots and lots of tinkering, and then comes an output. You know, yeah, I can see that the photographers of the original would want to sue me for infringement, and I could say, oh, oh, all I took was whatever I took wasn't protected, you know, because again, it's sort of like we were talking about before that, you know, Travis Kelsey's face is his face and Taylor Swift's face is her face. And, you know, any there was no, no protected expression was taken. And, and, to, and then 
to the extent there was any, that it was a fair use, right? So you can, mm-hmm. you know, but then again, then the, even that fair use part is like, well, what did you do with the image? I mean, were you just, you know, were you selling t-shirts and mugs with it? Or were you do, you know, just, you know, putting it on your website as a as a joke, right? Or as, as a parody of, or a satire of, of them or of the NFL for kind of going all in on this, right? So- Right. All I'm saying is, you know, you're going to have lots of cases and each one is going to have its own factual nuances. In this case, will you know, the Warhol decision will be relevant, may be relevant for some and not for others. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. A friend said something to me so interesting, and I want us to land on this as our last question. This has been such a great conversation. I could talk to you all for many days on this topic. But they had mentioned to me how, you know, this is an uh, African-American artist whose family is interesting and, you know, in and of themselves trying to kind of work out a state and licensing, et cetera. But it feels like that aspect was lost in this case, meaning that, you know, where was the Prince family, you know, where is that? Uh, a state situated in this discussion around fair use of his image, around profiting off of his image. And the person said, you know, it really just struck them from a DEI perspective that here these two individuals, entities are kind of, you know, duking it out over this image of, of a prominent African-American artist that at initially was rejected by popular culture, Right. And, and has a family that is managing his estate and, and they weren't centered in the discussion. And I'm just really interested in hearing you all's perspectives around that. I don't believe that the Prince estate was involved at all in this case, but how do we think about that in the context of, you know, images, cultural appropriation of images, looking at this through the lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, just how, how would that fit legally um, in relation to this case? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. So to my knowledge, the Prince estate is not involved. Um, okay. And, but um, to what we what we were saying earlier, the, the thing that Warhol has copied is Prince's face. Right. Um, so you know, maybe there, so maybe it would be more appropriate to approach this from a like right of publicity sort of angle. Mm, but that's mm-hmm. not the way, that's not the way it came out. Yeah, and, right. and right of publicity is a, a state uh, a legal doctrine, and about half the states actually have statutes on the book about rights of publicity. The other half sort of protected under common law. There actually is sort of coming out of the the this whole the whole AI debate. There is a discussion or a possibility maybe there needs to be a federal right of publicity to harmonize mm. uh, mm-hmm. that because you have the possibility of, you know, deep fakes and so forth. Or, again, right. It's going to be right. so much easier for people to use someone's image for some other purpose uh, in a way they don't authorize it. And so then, you know, it, you know, you know again, in, in the state rights are very defined. And so it could be that they need to be tinkered with or broadened but then you need to make sure that it doesn't run into the First Amendment, yeah. because you can imagine all kinds of you know perfectly legitimate uses, uh, certainly for 
uh, parody um, or political commentary that's appropriate as opposed to sort of like the deep fake situation, which would not be appropriate. Um, so uh, I mean, yeah. there are there are doctrines out there that might help address this. And there is a discussion about figuring out how to broaden those doctrines or plug holes that might uh, become more visible in the uh, in this context. And, and a lot of that is, you know, it, it, it sort of relates to the whole you know, name, image, and name, image, and likeness issue that's come up in sort of the college uh, sports context, where now the yes, the yes, athletes, yep. right, who have been you know completely exploited by the universities for so long, now are going to have the ability to make some money off of their uh, name, image, and likeness, and you know, some of them are making a lot of money from it, but uh, most, yeah. of course, aren't. Yeah, no, thank you for raising that. What an important point. And maybe perhaps we can revisit that in another discussion because, boy, is that compelling around the licensing of images of college athletes. It's a fascinating topic, too, as is this case. And I think we're going to continue to to learn more along the days. And you all have really helped us in further our understanding around the complexities and the challenges of this case and, and really what libraries and archives and museums should be doing in terms of legal due diligence around copyright. So thank you so much for your time today. This was a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to our Toward Inclusive Excellence Fall Semester Podcast with Katie Zimmerman, the MIT Library's Director of Copyright Strategy, and Jonathan Ban of Policy Bandwidth about the Supreme Court's copyright and fair use case ruling in the matter of the Andy Warhol Foundation for Visual Arts versus Lynn Goldsmith. I encourage you to sign up for reminders of new content releases and follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and TikTok. Thank you so much for your support. Be well.